Mo Facts with Adam Curry for February 29th, 2020. This is episode number 27. Hey, hey, Mo. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing good, man. And apologies to uh, everybody who's been listening. Uh, and that includes all the producers for being a few days late this week. <laughs> Oh yeah, we <laughs> just a few ran into some real life issues, but uh, we're back on track. Yeah, now um, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do next week because I leave for um, Los Angeles for a couple of days to do the Rogan show on uh, Monday, so I won't be back until Wednesday. So it may not be until Friday or Saturday next week until we do it again. Okay, we'll be on the same cycle. It looks like. So yeah, something like that. It'll shift, but you know we're we're still sticking with our ones. And hey, how about it? We get to do it on uh, on Leap Day. No, not Leap Day. Isn't today Correction. Leap Day? Uh, oh, I'm Correction. So, oh, I'm so. Uh-oh. Where did today I mess up? Today is Black History Bonus Day. Oh. <laughs> I should have known. Yes, this is a special Black History Month. Yes, Black we History. Get, we get. <laughs> Huh? We get one one more extra, almost a month. Yeah, one, one more day closer to a month. Moving on up, Mo. Almost, <laughs> almost a month. One of these days, you guys will get a 31-day month. I'm telling you, just stick with it. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> All right. Um, lots of clips, lots, lots to get to today. Very excited to hear what we're going to do. And for that, of course, we need to roll out the big wheel of clips let's see what the topic will be what are we going to get the oh it's slowing down and what will we get what happened to mini mike where is he mini mike has spent a fortune there is nobody i'd rather run against than little mike Mm, we're going all political today i like it yes (laughs) okay mike bloomberg you asked some question about mike bloomberg on the last show yeah, uh, yeah. Like, if if he was a viable candidate for uh, for ADOS, right? So I found something. In it. I'm going to cover that, but I found something even more interesting Ooh. is the billionaire beef between Donald Trump and and Michael Bloomberg. Yes, not discussed very much. Uh, the mainstream doesn't like to show this because that would discredit their possible white knight. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg. So I'm glad you picked some of this up. So in this show, what we're going to do is compare and contrast the two against each other and how the media uh, covers covers uh, the two in different ways. So I guess we'll just jump right in with uh, Trump and Bloomberg used to be friends. As President Trump attacks the Democrats battling to take him on in November, he's increasingly targeting fellow billionaire and New York uh, former New York uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And the former mayor is fighting right back. CNN's Brian Todd is here with more. Brian Trump and Bloomberg, they share a very long history. They do share a long history, Wolf, as titanic power players in New York. Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg at various times partnered on different projects. They engaged socially and praised each other for what each had done for the city. But they split politically when Trump declared for president. And tonight, it's clear that Donald Trump sees Michael Bloomberg as a threat. Look, he's a lightweight. The way they talk about each other now, you'd think they've been enemies for life. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. But back in New York, back in the day, a different dynamic. And I have to say, you have been a great mayor. Come here. You really have. I mean, this guy is fantastic. 
That was in October 2013. Then New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Donald Trump lavished praise on each other after Trump helped Bloomberg convert a trash dump in the Bronx into a high-end golf course. But if there's anybody that has changed this city, it is Donald Trump. He really has done an amazing thing, and this is another part of it. Donald, thank you for your confidence in the city. Analysts say that partnership actually could have been the genesis of their falling out, because in a 2016 interview with Wolf Blitzer, Trump took all the credit for the project. I took it over, I got it knocked up in one year, and now it's a tremendous success. Michael asked me if I'd get involved in it. Bloomberg thought that was an exaggeration, his former aides thought that was an exaggeration, um, and it sort of split between them. Oh, man. Oh, don't tell me this is, <laughs> this is just a cockfight. <laughs> <laughs> a billionaire, a, a billion dollar one. So, uh, yeah. or maybe one's allegedly a, a billionaire. So, right, you never know <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you listen to uh, the mainstream media. But so, what really intrigued me about this is you have two people that used to be friends, yep. but not friends anymore. Or were they ever friends? Were they just using each other uh, for what they could offer each other? So, I think this will be a great matchup. <laughs> well, and, and, and in light of this, uh, Bloomberg did a CNN town hall the other day, which I watched. And, you know, uh, well, I'm just going to withhold judgment uh, because I, I I learned a couple things I didn't know. And I just saw some things that I hadn't realized earlier. So I'm very curious to see where you take us in this. OK, so, I mean, we can just jump into uh, part two. But before then, Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg appeared to get along, or at least found each other useful. Trump backed Bloomberg's effort to run for a third term as New York's mayor. They golfed together. Bloomberg appeared on Trump's NBC show, The Apprentice. And their daughters appeared in an HBO documentary called Born Rich. But analysts say in the real world of New York business and philanthropy. In that world, it was Bloomberg who was the star and it was Trump who was the one who was always looking for acceptance and rarely getting it. During all of his life, Donald Trump has longed for the approval of the New York establishment. Mike Bloomberg was the New York establishment. Now, the two are being compared and contrasted under a microscope. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've mentioned many times on uh, No Agenda Show that I know this type of guy, this type of guy that Trump is, who... Um, because I've been to a lot, a lot of these types of parties, not so much in New York, but it's the same everywhere in the world. And you've got the elites, you know, the old money, the, uh, you know, e- even show business isn't really considered part of their uh, part of their circle. But they let the people in, you know, show business because they're pretty and they get attention and they can hang out with them. And other rich people, even if they don't like it, yeah, I'd be like, eh, OK, you know, we'll we'll let them hang out with us. But I I'm, I don't know if Trump really wanted that acceptance most of these guys that i know and also some women absolutely uh crave that acceptance in those circles and usually don't get it so that's just some personal experience and what i find interesting is uh trump came from a affluent background you know a rich father Mm -hmm. and bloomberg didn't but bloomberg's more accepted yeah, yes, you also, you also the, the elites. You also have more to under, Trump. You have to understand the difference having lived there. The difference between Manhattan and Queens. I mean, you might as well have a passport checkpoint uh, when it comes to how those two <laughs> areas, those boroughs, are uh, uh, perceived. Certainly by each other. Okay, that's interesting. So, I guess we we'll just jump right into um, clip three. 
Both switched political parties repeatedly and were unexpected winners in their biggest elections. And both became billionaires, although on the Forbes list of the wealthiest Americans at the end of last year, Michael Bloomberg ranked eighth with $53.4 billion, while Trump ranked 275th with $3.1 billion. They both named their businesses after themselves. They're both very wealthy people. But Bloomberg came from a more working class background. And Donald Trump, of course, inherited a lot of money uh, from his father to run, run his business. He's a Going forward, how out. nasty He's and personal the will their battle become? Well, I think in a head-to-head -head battle, Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump will be nastier than anything we've seen in politics, perhaps in 100 years. <laughs> you know, these, these are two people who are not afraid to fight, and they're not afraid to fight in a very personal way. Oh, it's a great time to be alive. And this is exactly why I want to see this matchup. Yeah, of course. Uh, it would be a beauty. Ber Bernie and Trump will be good, too, but this one right here will be great because they will let the words fly. And I just want to see, if you notice, the media threw some shade at Trump by saying, oh, he was number 250-something on the list of yeah. uh, billionaires. <laughs> it's this real, this real billionaire, fake billionaire thing. And, and they... I'm just going to say, these lists are uh -huh. such horse crap. I've been on these lists <laughs> back when I actually had a lot of money, and uh, they would wild, in my case, wildly overestimate, oh, Curry, yeah, he's got probably 200, uh, 200 million. <laughs> That's right. That's why I'm doing podcasts now, everybody. Um, so these lists are, 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 most of the people on the list, are they're usually angry because their number isn't right. The ranking, mm -hmm. I do, I, I'm not sure how that plays into people. I think most people just are like, oh, yeah, I'm on the list. You know, it's kind of cool. But it, yeah, it, it, who knows the, what the accuracy is? And, and the media really wants this matchup because of the amount of money that would be spent. Oh, I yeah. know Trump is sitting on a couple, maybe oh, billion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and his war chest. And I mean, Bloomberg has what, like, I've heard up to $53 billion. So dropping a couple billion dollars out of his own pocket won't be anything. So the media really wants this matchup and they're pushing it. And, the, uh, and, the, and just, and just like the, although I really think the Bernie uh, uh, Trump matchup would be what we need because we need to know, are mm -hmm. we socialist? Are we capitalist? Which direction do we want to go in? But knowing whether you can buy your way into the presidency, which is clearly what Bloomberg has been doing, is also important to know. He, he, it'll be interesting to see how it goes either way. Yep. Uh, but what we want to see here, what I want to do today with, with the show is compare and contrast <laughs> some of the uh, views or... Uh, well, or, ba well basi basically, what we're going to do here is we're doing all of the color commentary before the thriller in Manila. Is that uh, yeah, is that fair? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is so. If it, if it doesn't happen, okay. But this would be the preamble to this. We are getting ready for the big pay per view event, ladies and gentlemen. And boy, these two guys, it would make sense if you had to pay to view it. But this is what's going on. And with that said, we have Trump ripping through Dems. And now they have a new member of the crew, Mini Mike. Mini Mike. No boxes. We call them no boxes. <laughs> and I hear he's getting pounded tonight. You know he's in a debate. I hear they're pounding him. <laughs> he spent $500 million so far 
And I think he has 15 points. It just came out. Hey, fake news. How many points does he have right now? 15? They won't tell you the truth. the truth. They just came out with a poll a little while ago. Mini Mike was at 15 and Crazy Bernie was at 31. That's a lot. And Mini Mike just spent 500 million dollars. <laughs> a, lot, a lot lot of money. So we got great nicknames here. We got Mini Mike. Yep. Uh, Mr. No boxes. No boxes. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this is why I came for it. Yeah, well, no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I'm so down with it, Mo. And we have a this is a we're in 2020, and this is an actual presidential election. Mm-hmm. This this is where we're at. We have um, two billionaires firing uh, tweets back and forth to each other. Yeah, it it, it minus the tweets, it's kind of like Russia. <laughs> so. Uh, Let's listen to uh, Bloomberg fire back. CNN reports Bloomberg has already spent more than $350 million of his own money. He has a reported net worth of $60 billion left to play around with. One of the takeaways here, and there's a bunch, is the shift in black support among the top three candidates. Biden is losing that support while both Sanders and Bloomberg are trending up. Keep in mind, this was a Republican mayor in a very Democratic city, a Republican mayor who was a Rudy Giuliani ally uh, who had gotten into some trouble because his policing uh, policy stop and frisk had been ruled unconstitutional. How did he get endorsements from key Democrats in his New York City races? Well, uh, one thing he would do is that he would donate very generously to key people, you know, to nonprofits or maybe a church group that someone who led the church was very influential. So he was able to curry favor with people who can then give him very meaningful endorsements. Furthermore, he could also silence critics. After he had transferred uh, his, his voter ID from Republican to Independent, the Republican Party never attacked him after that for the rest of his mayoralty and was sort of curious but then you look at those financial filings and you see he was giving them millions of dollars so yeah. he's been able to use his money to both curry support but also silence dissent i, I think uh, mike has the experience uh i think that um he has the the right values and i think he has uh the capability to take on what is just an incredible uh machine which is going to be the trump re-election campaign <laughs> yes I hereby issue a cease and desist on the term currying favor. I'm getting a little annoyed by it. (laughs) (laughs) So Bloomberg is mysteriously rising. uh, People are very quiet. He's rising in popularity with the black black vote or, you know. According to the polls. uh, According to the polls, which the media do the polls, and he has a big old pile of uh, billions is spread around, so of course they're going to keep them around. Uh, and just put an earmark in one thing they brought up in this clip that stop and frisk because we're going to revisit that good right after we listen to uh, fire back too. Well, this morning he took his attacks to Twitter. The president did, posting his altered image of the man he's dubbed Mini Mike and calling him a loser who has money but can't debate and a five foot four inch mass of dead energy. Bloomberg quickly hit back, (laughs) tweeting at Trump. We know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back, they laugh at you and call you a carnival barking clown. They know you inherited a fortune and squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. That 
<laughs> that is even better as a WWE preview. This is good. So, what Trump Trump is coming at Mike being a petite man, uh, and I think it gets under Bloomberg's skin. But Bloomberg went real low <laughs> with by saying, "I know the people that we both hang out with the same people, and they, and they think you're a clown." Yeah, that gets under uh, Trump's well, skin as you, well do you because think, do you think he it wants does? to be accepted. Do you think it does? I, I think deep down. Trump is the Joker because he wasn't allowed to be Batman. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, he he wanted to be Bruce Wayne, and you know he wanted to be that you know the you know that hero type, but he just it's the class thing. Like I mean, you brought it up yourself with the Queens, and I I never looked at it as the borough through the borough lens, but yeah, that's that's a real thing. I mean, that's that's just the same as New York and New Jersey. I mean. We get mm-hmm. along, but we're really different people. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to we're doing a lot of foreshadowing here. But as I promised, we're going to get back to the stop and frisk. Uh, topic and how Trump viewed it in the 2016 election. And when it comes to uh, stop and frisk, you know, you're talking about taking guns away. Well, I'm talking about taking guns away from gangs and people that use them. And I don't think I really don't think you disagree with me on this. If you want to know the truth, I think maybe there's a political reason why you can't say it. But I really don't believe in New York City. Stop and frisk. We had two thousand two hundred murders and stop and frisk brought it down to five hundred murders. Five hundred murders, a lot of murders. Hard to believe 500 is like supposed to be good. But we went from 2,200 to 500, and it was continued on by Mayor Bloomberg, and it was terminated by current mayor. But stop and frisk had a tremendous impact on the safety of New York City, tremendous beyond belief. So when you say it has no impact, it really did. It had a very, very big impact. How old was this clip? Do you know? That was from 2016? The 2016 one? This was in the 2016 hmm. uh, debate against Hillary Clinton, and he right. was telling her, oh, "You yes. even, yeah. you even um, might agree with it, but for political reasons, you can't say that." So I want to make it clear that Trump is all for stop and frisk. What it comes to find out that up until now, uh, 2019, Bloomberg was also a fan of stop and frisk, and a journalist journalist exposed him. Bloomberg is racist. That's the hashtag that's trending on Twitter. Since audio of remarks made by the 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful, the former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg, surfaced earlier this week. In the clip from the 2015 Aspen Institute, Bloomberg is heard defending the New York City Police Department's controversial stop-and-frisk policies, saying, quote, 95 percent of murders murdered victims fit one MO. You can just take the description." Xerox it, pass it out to all the cops. Listen closely. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. 
That's Mike Bloomberg saying, quote, they are male, minority, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. He went on to say, quote, and the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them up against the walls and frisk them. Bloomberg issued a statement Tuesday saying, quote, I inherited the police practice of stop and frisk, and as part of our effort to stop gun violence, it was overused. By the time I left office, I cut it back by 95 percent, but I should have done it faster and sooner. I regret that, and I have apologized, unquote. Yeah, I, I have some actual numbers on that. I don't know if it's appropriate at this point in your presentation. I mean, you could share. This started under Giuliani, and it was always called, and I think it still officially is called, Stop, Question, and Frisk. And this all mm-hmm. came out in uh, in a lawsuit, and I believe it was ultimately the Supreme Court who said it was—because uh, my worry with these things is constitutionality first. Uh, they ruled right. it was not unconstitutional, uh, but the way it was implemented uh, could have been— uh, deemed unconstitutional. There's no real question of race in this case. Uh, just leaving mm-hmm. that clip aside. But when it started, then um, I believe they stopped uh, two hundred thousand people. No, a hundred thousand people and uh, fifty thousand had some form of weapon or a prior conviction or a warrant, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And what in, under Bloomberg that went up to six hundred and fifty thousand people. But the amount of um, of people who actually were uh, arrested because of the stop, question, and frisk only went up marginally, so about ten percent. So it went up about from fifty to sixty-five. Now the the what you need to factor into that is, and you don't know exactly if that's because of the more that he did or not, is that indeed the murder rate did have under Bloomberg versus uh, Giuliani, and as far mm-hmm. as I know. The practice is still in place today in, and in many other cities in the United States. And you, you're exactly right with those numbers. But when you look at it and how people view Trump and his view on stopping freeze versus Bloomberg, it's like night and day. It, 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 they, they give him a pass like like they just said he apologized and, like, and you're going to hear later how people just kind of write it off I mean, and accept his apology. But let's get in on, let's actually listen to the journalist who, who exposed Bloomberg. But Bloomberg did not just inherit stop and frisk. During his tenure as mayor, um, the use of the practice increased sevenfold. During his time in office, the New York police recorded over 5 million stop and frisks. The vast majority of those stopped were black and Latino. As mayor of New York, Bloomberg long defended stop and frisk. This is Bloomberg speaking during a 2013 interview on uh, WOR radio. They just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims describe as committing the murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much (laughs) and minorities too little. In fact, thousands of people (laughs) marched against stop and frisk during his three terms in office. Bloomberg defended stop and frisk as recently as 2019, only apologizing for the practice publicly in November, shortly after entering the presidential race. Yeah, yeah, I can see. What what is that? (laughs) I can see. I can see where. Well, here's how his 
And Bloomberg, by the way, doesn't give a shit about anybody. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of it. Uh, he's at a, a whole different plane, a whole different plane. Um, but he's being, in his mind, pragmatic. And he's saying, well, here's the statistics that we see. Now, of course, if you're doing stop and frisk in neighborhood where it's predominantly um, darker colored skin, because that's really mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. And that's not just ADOS. It's uh, Latinos. It's all it's all different kind. Darker skin. That's what right. I'm saying. Well, that's where they live. If that's where you're stopping and frisking. I can see how those numbers pan out, but you're really identifying something we already knew. You're identifying that um, there's a lot of black-on-black crime in cities. There's a lot of crime in uh, in poor neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I think, personally, in a 10-year tenure, instead of increasing, you know, you're putting a Band-Aid on the problem. And the thinking is, well, if you know you can get stopped, I mean, thrown against the wall then you're probably not going to bring your gun with you when you go out into the street. Okay, right. but there's other ways to solve this problem. And I think the, the lack of imagination is what bothers me the most. And it's the Bloomberg is a walking, talking algorithm. <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you, if you listen to what he said, he was like, oh, well, if you just look at the numbers, yeah. we're, we're harassing white people too much. <laughs> you know, we need, we need to harass more, more, yeah, that, more colored people. That, does, mean, that doesn't play, that doesn't play uh, very well. <laughs> But from, and it's got, from his algo perspective, I understand what he's saying. But it, uh, again, it's egregious that he's saying this. And I, I think this is really this is the racial issue right here. Instead of saying, oh, you know, why don't we turn around and try some other things to eradicate poverty in these neighborhoods? Now, let, let, let me be hypothetical for a minute. Let's say, you know, white guys do a majority of the white collar crime. So we're just gonna break into your financial records without a warrant, yeah, and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and poke around to see what we find, mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna target, you know, uh, affluent white men because that's who is committing a lot of these crimes. How long would that stand? Well, if you if you said it that way, it wouldn't stand at all. Unfortunately, it's true. You forgot one descriptor, though. Uh, if it's conservative white men, they get do get targeted for that, mainly by the IRS, which is a political weapon. So, the, the, but yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. And of course, it's bull like crap. If, like if the SEC was just standing outside of Wall Street, you know, banks and saying, "Hey, give me your phone." Uh, you know, I yeah. mean, now my, but the, I'm not, I just, my analogy works. And you know, how do we go a, a, about preventing this instead of just trying to? nail people so that is the uh, is the issue with stop and frisk well i mean it's big money yeah. it, you know uh on both sides uh, you oh, of have course it won't happen no 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 of court. course not of course not no and and if you really did that in all earnest then you'd find a lot of stuff a lot of politicians don't want people to know and and the, and the money on the back end the big money on the back end is the increase in uh property value yes sir. because the yep. heavy policing comes in with the gentrification yep and yep. all the, uh, we're going to see how all this ties together, but uh, let's get into clip three. Well, for more, we're going to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're joined by Benjamin Dixon, the host of The Benjamin Dixon Show and podcast. He unearthed and publicized the 2015 audio of Michael Bloomberg speaking at the Aspen Institute that we just played for you. Uh, Dixon is the co-founder of the NorthStar.com, the revitalized abolitionist newspaper of Frederick Douglass. It's great to have you with us. Um, Benjamin Dixon, uh, talk about—I mean, it's very clear that the Bloomberg campaign knew that this was going to drop. They knew there was this recording— 
however muffled of his statements at the Aspen Institute from 2015, and they were ready with a statement. Talk about uh, why you released this, how you found it, and, the, and what uh, Bloomberg has said in response. Yes, thanks for having me, Amy. Um, it was online. It was hiding in plain sight. Um, I've read several articles about this speech, and what drew my attention to it was the fact that they were looking, uh, that Bloomberg's team actually requested that the video from the Aspen Institute not be released. Uh, the Aspen Insp Institute uh, acquiesced. They did not release the video, but I was hoping to be able to find at least a, an audio clip, and that's exactly what I found. It had been online for five years. I was able to isolate it, cut it up, and make it a little more audible. And I, I felt that it just carried a significant impact that the words in the article did not. I felt like people needed to hear his voice say these things. Thank God for podcasters. It took a podcaster. <laughs> now we have all these huge <laughs> newsrooms and there are, you know, uh, it's amazing. Stop and frisk. I mean, they Donald Trump, anything they could go find it talk to anybody but it's a it's on youtube for five years and none of your big publication you know publications picked it up nor the trump campaign i'm sure they didn't want to touch it seeing considering oh. his endorsement of it in the past well trump has an interesting view on that and we'll hear that in clip four <laughs> and on tuesday morning president trump tweeted um yeah. Wow, Bloomberg is a total racist. This was in response to the video, the, the audio you released. Wow, Bloomberg is a total racist. Trump later deleted the post. Interestingly, while campaigning for president in 2016, Trump called for stop and frisk to be instituted nationwide. Right. Right. Yeah. It, the level of hypocrisy that comes from the president isn't surprising, but that's really that exemplifies the weakness that candidates like Michael Bloomberg will have against Donald Trump. His audience has no problem with the fact that he is a racist, but he will call someone else a racist. Michael Bloomberg has put himself in a position where he has a longstanding history of problems in New York City, particularly with stop and frisk. And so the president will stand on the debate stage and call him a racist when the rest of America knows that he's the white supremacist in chief. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Takes a blogger to know that too, I guess. Woo! So Trump's the white supremacist in chief. Yes, but Bloomberg just has problems. Just, <laughs> he, you know, he, he's not. He's not a white supremacist. I'm, whereas, it's, and, whereas it's one thing for Trump to say, "Hey, here are the numbers. Look at what happened. Murder rate went down." It's a little different to say, "Hey, you can just uh, copy the profile and throw him against the wall." I think there's a little more racist uh, undertones in Bloomberg's uh, description. And you inherited it from Giuliani and you ratcheted it up, you know, 600, what do you say, 600, 600% or something 500%, like that? 500%, crazy. 500%. 500%, right. So, I mean, it wasn't bad. He's like, oh, yeah, I hold my beer, Giuliani. Uh, yeah, let me show you how I do stop it. <laughs> yeah. And, but then it's also hilarious for Trump to gaslight and say, hey, <laughs> Bloomberg's a racist for uh, supporting Stop and Frisk. My mind is about to is explode. It, is this like, a, is this a topic? Is this something that uh, that Ados is talking about? About this, or is it your sharp mind, which you have, that you pick up on this? Well, no. It, okay, the no vote, uh, Ados, uh, foundational black, native black crowd. The people are saying we're not going to vote unless we get some something tangible. That crowd is calling out the hypocrisy from the mainstream media. 
the hypocrisy that they're not uh, um, tar- how they cover one and, and then they the wa- you know whitewash the others um, uh, sins. Got it. And all Bloomberg has to do is apologize. Well, yeah, he's Michael Bloomberg. He's got sixty billion dollars. It matters in America. Well, let's listen to him apologize. We begin tonight with that stop and frisk apology from New York City's former mayor, Michael Bloomberg. He made the comments during a service at a Brooklyn church today. Many are now saying the apology is, quote, long overdue. TV 1055's Hazel Sanchez has the story. I can't change history. However, today, I want you to know that I realized back then I was wrong. And I'm sorry. On Sunday morning, former Mayor Mike Bloomberg stood before the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn and apologized for the stop and frisk policy he long supported while he ran New York City. Now that he's making a run for the White House, many New Yorkers are doubting his apology is sincere. Do you think it's sincere? No. (laughs) No. No, it's about trying to get votes. It's real convenient. That's what it looks like. I got something important really wrong. I didn't understand that back then, the full impact that stops were having on the black and Latino communities. I was totally focused on saving lives, but as we know, good intentions aren't good enough. Man, I hope you have the clip where where Bloomberg says, uh, well, uh, I have black friends and they tell me that this was no good. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't don't have that clip, but it's amazing how I was like, oh, I didn't realize uh, Gee, cops I, throwing, uh, harassing people, citizens moving freely inside of a city. Yeah, I didn't here, realize that it was going to be a problem. Here it is. Here it is. And I know a lot of black people that if they were white, it would have been a lot easier for them. No, that's not the one I was thinking of. But it's <laughs> stuff like that. Like, oh, I know a lot of black people. Well, you didn't know before, Mike, that your black people didn't say, "Hey, uh, this is this is fucked up, Mike." No, no. Nah. Well, for one reason. Even after this apology, there's always somebody that willing to get the butter biscuits. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Apology too. Brooklyn Borough President and former NYPD officer Eric Adams met and with Bloomberg when, today. When Michaels, I believe, sincerely felt as though they made a grave mistake years ago in their implementation of stop and frisk, I accept this apology. I believe that the question now becomes how do we move forward? What do we do now after that acknowledgement? Wait, wait, who was this? That is the president of the brooklyn borough police oh you can i mean you can play the first like 10 seconds they'll they'll give his title again yeah i just want to hear that okay brooklyn borough president and former nypd officer eric adams brooklyn borough president president. okay Okay. all right yeah but uh, he he, when you got 60 billion dollars 50 billion dollars you man you know how big that plate is of butter biscuits I mean, you can you can buy whoever you want. Yes, I do actually. And and, and notice how quiet everybody really. Is. And it's not even. And and when I say butter biscuits, that's not even a racial thing because you notice how MSNBC, CNN, they're kind of like, oh yeah, he apologized. Expl- explain the it. explain the butter biscuits again, uh, Mo, for okay, people who didn't but, catch it. Butter last time. biscuits. So what this is is. It's typically used towards black people by other black people to say when somebody says something they know is not true, but it 
gains them financially or some kind uh, of clout or uh, affluence. They they they'll go out and be bought off, and the the currency that they're bought off in is butter biscuits. (laughs) So just just explain that (laughs) just a little bit. It's like Uh, like Bitcoin only tastier, right? (laughs) (laughs) Only only butterier. So of course Trump couldn't let uh, this apology slide by, and he had to say it was disingenuous. I was going to say, Mr. President, you took on uh, Michael Bloomberg and Brad Parscale did as well over stop and frisk. Yet in 2016 and 2018, you praised Rudy Giuliani for the stop and frisk program. So what's different about what Bloomberg said from what you believe the program? Well, I'll tell you what, I looked at it and I watched him pander at a church and practically beg for forgiveness. I wouldn't have begged for forgiveness. I mean, he was doing his job at the time. And then he when he went up to the church, uh, I thought it was disgraceful. Do you support that policy? And is it, as you said in the tweet, well, anything we can do to get down crime and to get rid of drugs. But I think when a man is with stop and frisk his whole life, and then he decides to go Democrat, and he goes to a church, and he's practically crying. It looked like hell. He's practically crying, saying how what a horrible thing he did. I think that's so disingenuous. You know what I'm talking about, fellas. That was so of Bloomberg. Look, he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight. You're going to find that out. Hmm. So this is this. I think this is why Trump gets respect for at least doubling down on what you believe. Right. Even though I don't agree with it, stopping frisk was a terrible thing. It was uh, basically, in my point of view, a form of martial law mm-hmm. because when you can't move freely in your own community, that's a problem. Yeah, it's of course <clears throat> that's a huge problem. But we have to understand. The black boule was on board with these things, with the crime bill, with the um, stop and frisk. They were on board because they looked at it like, oh, we need to do something to keep our place. Because, you know, when we had this all stems from the problem with the drugs and uh, crack era in the 80s. Right. You know, it was basically go back to 70s, really, with the heroin uh, epidemic. But, I mean, these communities became basically drug drug zones and war zones with the, with the guns and so, drugs. So are you saying the boule would like to have it continue contained? Is, is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, this is how it worked. The citizens would go to the boule uh, representative in their community, you know, the mayor, alderman, whoever they are. Yeah, say, Eric you know, Adams. The, you, <laughs> Eric you, Adams. Yeah, you need... Yeah, you need to clean these streets up. The citizens would say, you know, my kids can't play. And instead of being being sophisticated, they just went and said to people like Bloomberg, Giuliani, and whoever else, you need to crack down. Mm-hmm. They cracked down, but the problem is the police didn't distinguish between a kid, an innocent kid walking down the street with a hooded, hooded, uh, hoodie, hoodie on mm-hmm. and an actual criminal. Right. It was like we're just we're just doing it by the numbers, you know. Uh, you look as Giuliani said. I mean, not Giuliani, but um, Bloomberg, Bloomberg said you could just you could Xerox the picture and it meant, you know, it was just like if you fit the description, if you're black or brown, within you know fifteen to maybe thirty, you are more likely going to be a criminal. They right. they didn't do any policing from the top down and taking down the kingpins. They you know was 
they, exactly. they just picked no, on no, the no other measures identifying the problem. This was this was the it's the the Belgian screwdriver. You know, it's like you just bash away with a screwdriver at the problem. Right. So uh, let's get back into listen to Trump uh, call Bloomberg disingenuous. He's also one of the worst debaters I've ever seen. And his presence is zero. So he'll spend his three, four, five hundred million dollars. Maybe they will take it away. Frankly, I'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders because Sanders has real followers, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not. I happen to think it's terrible what he says, but he has followers. Bloomberg's just buying his way in. Uh, But we're going to find out what happens. We're going to find out. But when you watch, go back to the church where he apologized for everything he ever did practically, and he looked pathetic. Our country doesn't need that kind of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... I, too, would like to see this Bloomberg. I agree with you, Trump. I want to see the Bloomberg Trump uh, uh, battle. But just to give a little context to what a stop and frisk interaction would look like uh, between cops and uh, young men in those neighborhoods, I found this documentary called The Hunted and the Hated. An inside look at the NYPD, uh, NYPD stop and frisk policy. And that was directed by Ross Tuttle. Walking home from my girlfriend's house and a cop car went past me. A couple of seconds later, I heard the car turn around and they just popped out. They just all just jumped out the car. I decided to record it because I was getting stopped a lot and I didn't have evidence of cop being disrespectful or anything. So I press the button and recorded the whole thing. I just got stopped like two blocks you know ago, yo. You look very suspicious. Because y'all always looking Listen, at me crazy. Because you keep looking back at us, man. Because you always, y'all always looking crazy, yo. Coming up the block, always. That's our job, man. Just stay at me, yo. Listen to me. Listen to me. Our job is to look suspicious behavior. When you keep looking at us like that, looking back. Because y'all always, like, stop. I just got stopped like two blocks away, like. Because you keep doing that shit, man. We stopped you last time. Listen to me. When you're walking the block with your hood up and you keep looking back at us like that, you think you're going to have something. Because I have my hoodie in there. That? They do that. You have your hoodie on your body. Why well, because it was cold. You want to smack me? Yeah. You want me to see you in the smack thing? No, you asked me why I had a book bag on. What are you talking to? You asked me why I had a book bag on. You asked me if I had a book bag on. Come on, why are you touching me for? Oh, man. That's because he's wearing a hoodie? Yeah, walking up the block with a book bag. Yeah. And you're looking at us. I mean, that's your MO. That's your. Yeah. That's the M. This reason why I play this is this is the M.O. Yeah. If you're brown or brown, I mean any shade of brown, uh, wearing a hoodie and walking up the block with a book bag. Yeah, bad. You fit the M.O. Yeah, very bad. How many kids go to school like that every day? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and the reason why I want to, I just want to shed light on this. I understand that something needs to be done for the crime. But these people are geniuses. Bloomberg is a genius. Uh, and the best you can do is just, like, uh, harass people? It, well, even worse, it starts off with the cops saying, yeah, you were looking at us. He said, yeah, because you, you're standing there menacing. And I I mean, I think anyone knows that if you've ever been pulled over. I was pulled over just recently. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the first thing I said is, like, Hey man, you were really riding my ass. So you know, if you're pulling me over for speeding, I, I don't know when I was speeding, but I didn't like it, and you know, I pulled over into the right hand lane. 
And uh, it can be intimidating to anybody of any age. It mm-hmm. used to be different, but yeah. Uh, and then, and, and then, and then to say, well, it's because you wear. Why are you wearing your hoodie? <laughs> what the? F- that's wrong, man. <laughs> so wrong. So, so let's just listen to the second uh, clip in this uh, interaction. He was holding me. He was going through your pocket. He was going up, down. He was going through my sweater. Then that's when that's when he told me to keep my hands on my head. So I was like this the whole time. You want to go to jail? What, what, for, what, for what? Shut for your what? fucking mouth. Why well, am I getting arrested for? Mouth. What am I getting arrested for? For being a fucking mutt. You know what? That's, a, that's a law? Get, being a mutt? Who the fuck are you talking Because you, you over here telling me why I have a hoodie, why I have a good bag on the set for my hoodie. He decided to take my hand from here and he put it behind my back like that. Why are you putting it on my arm way back here? Shut your fucking mouth! You're asking me questions. Weren't you a fucking explorer at one point? I, I was, and I had fucking respect. Because that stopped me, you always stopped me for no reason. You want somebody talking to you? Why are you pushing? Why are you pushing? Why are you pushing? You're gonna break my arm. For what? Dude, I'm gonna fucking break your arm. Who's your father? You're gonna push me in my face? He's not gonna answer. He don't got a phone. You're in traffic? Nope. Yup. He's a traffic cop. Yup. Don't touch me. Okay, he's a traffic cop. Why are you pushing me in my face? Why are you pushing me in my face? Yeah, yeah. And this kid hard to listen is to. a son of a cop. Yeah, traffic cop though doesn't count. Yeah, <laughs> Tra- traffic cop, not the it, same thing. Wow. H- how's that work? Well, this, I think that this, where you were explorers. So I think I mean uh, everything. Explorers. Ev- I think it's like a the, the kid is the kid police program. Oh, okay. Explorers if I'm not mistaken, so I mean yeah. it's not like this guy, this kid is anti-cop. It's just, I mean, you're being harassed. I mean, just the freedom of movement, man. That that's that's wrong. That's wrong. I mean, it just I don't I don't agree with that, and it irks, it irks me. It's uh, yeah. The police explorers career oriented program gives young adults the opportunity to explore a career in law enforcement by working with local law enforcement agencies. Do we know what happened to these officers who uh, who treated him this way? Uh, I think that he filed a complaint against them, but. I don't think I'm, I don't I don't know I didn't finish the uh, documentary I just want to catch more of the interaction mm. uh, just so people can hear you have a son of a police officer <laughs> yeah this is walking wrong. in his community he would work he wanted obviously explore the uh, potential to be a police officer himself yeah and and the only thing you want I mean you call him a mutt and you know but. It is what it is. My problem is when you have these people condemn one side being Trump and give the other side a pass because he apologized and the other guy was the actual one instituting the policy or, or ratcheting up the policy. And, that's, and this, condoning that's my it. Real and condoning it because yeah, you, you know that there were plenty of complaints. I mean, this this was news. I mean, I was in and out yeah. of New York. This was news. People knew about this. There was a lot of talk about it. And he and he supported it all the way up to 2019. Yeah, That's just, when the speech came from. They hit a speech, so it was like, just say you're sorry, man. I mean, it's, it's easy. <laughs> all right, so but we're gonna listen to one of our favorite uh, contributors, Miss Karen Hunter, uh, and Bloomberg's "Stop and Frisk" problem. Um, 2015. All right, now since running, I think Bloomberg apologized. Yep. Do we accept his apology? Huh? Go ahead, play his apology. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Oh, that's a real apology. Yeah. 
I'm making a juxtaposition because Snoop didn't apologize. But anyway, 866 <laughs> a little bit petty. And just by doing that, you know, that method, which started under Giuliani, which he continued with the Comstats and Ray Kelly. Yeah put a lot of black lives in harm, created a lot of trauma. There were more black boys, in particular black men, stopped and fricked, and they actually existed in the city of New York, and there's a lot of black people in New York. Yeah. It's the largest black city, uh, city in America. And, yeah, it was painful. Does the apology cover it? I mean, I think he was sincere in his apology for a mm-hmm. number of reasons. Yes, he's running for president. Right. He needs the black vote to run, to win. But I think that, you know, just like his Greenwood initiative that he put out after he found out about Tulsa yeah. last year, yeah. which is baffling to me that you can live in a country and not know. Where Do you hear this? Where was, uh, <laughs> where was Reverend Al all these years? I mean, I, I know. It was in New York. These, 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 this is in his backyard. Yeah, just want to make sure. Let me see. 2012, Rev Al takes New York NYPD stop and frisk law to task with upcoming silent march. So then I'm sure that uh, Bloomberg paid him and he went away, as Al, Rev Al does. As they said in the previous clip, he silenced, you know, he silenced his, his, uh, his naysayers. When you got that kind of cash, I mean, what are you going to do? But did you hear how she's like, oh, yeah, he apologized. Not we accept it. You know, he 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 wants to be president. He needs the black vote. So it must be sincere. How, how does that logic work? That would make it insincere. Um, Here we go. Reverend Al Sharpton. This is from 2010. Finally disagreed with Mayor Bloomberg a week ago on how to change elections in the city. Let's see. OK. Uh, Sharpton's National Action Network got a $110,000 grant from a brand new nonprofit funded by Bloomberg. Just want to make sure we stay on top of that, Jamoke. <laughs> Don't like him, man. And, and he's one of the most powerful men in, 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 in this game. Oh, yeah. In the race game. Yeah. Uh, but let's continue to listen to, uh, I guess, Karen Hunter, except. Bloomberg's apology. That's why we have to be informed. That's why I go so hard in the paint. So my question is, number one, people running for president. They're going to need the black vote to win on the Democratic side. And Trump is baffled by why he doesn't have more black supporter because you're racist, sir. Um, Listen, it doesn't matter how many programs you do, how many black people you let out of jail. If you legalize marijuana at your core, you hate black people. And I think if you had the opportunity to get rid of all black people and I'm talking about Mexicans, anybody with any melanin, anybody from any country that speaks any language other than English, I think you would wave a wand and get rid of us. That's fucking unhinged. This woman is is horrible. My God, woman. Oh, yeah. Bloomberg money. Yeah. You just said about Al Sharpton. Come on now. I thought we were talking about Bloomberg and stopping Frisk. All of a sudden, you accept his apology, but he's not a racist. And then you say, Trump, it doesn't matter how many black people you let out of jail. That doesn't atone for it, but Bloomberg's apology atones for his actually locking black people up. Like, this. I'm twenty two. In some way, twenty twenty, we know is vision. You know, clear vision. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, nice. This actual yep. twenty twenty election is going to clarify and crystallize a lot of things. We're seeing sides being drawn. We're seeing things being uh, brought to the light. 
when you have this kind of money, people are going to be exposed mm-hmm. and I'm going to be for it. Yeah, well, because, always for it. Of course, yeah, always for expose. You sit here and say, these two men that had the same exact views, they come from the same exact places, they have the same exact privilege as you see it, but you do this weird uh, Jedi mind trick or or however you want to look at it. Well, this guy is a racist to the core, but this other guy can be accepted because he apologized. How does that work? Yeah. I'm, Please tell me how that works. Well, I, I'm trying to find where... Uh, <clears throat> okay, so she's co-authored books, Karen Hunter with Al Sharpton. That says enough right there. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, she's tied in. Yes. And I want to say this other thing. I want to make sure I understand the term milieu correctly. This is a small, just a smaller side. But I think I spotted one. Okay. Between her, Stephen A. Smith, and Charlemagne the God. Okay, so milieu is, you know, your social environment. Mm-hmm. Fancy-ass French word for it. Right. Uh, and you can detect milieu by the way people dress, the way people talk, uh, even certain acts. That's usually where Dvorak and I pick it up, is h- okay. how people speak. Because the way they speak, and note, it, note that uh, Stephen A. Smith and uh, Shawman and the God are from the South. Mm-hmm. But they, ha- uh, I mean, not really. No, he Stephen A. Smith from New York, Charlemagne the God from the South. But they have this unique way of talking, and I know that I was like, she sounds like somebody. But just just pay attention to it next time you hear it. Okay, uh, I will. Because I think they run in the same circle as well. Um, uh, but let's just listen to uh problem three. But I had um I had a meeting today with a person who's not black and what? we were talking about loans and this and that. We we're going over my finances. And I said, yeah, I had this loan, uh, you know, it's a subprime loan, even though I had great credit, a great job and everything. She was like, why? I said, because the banks were predatory towards black people. And I said, you didn't heard of it. I hadn't heard of that. No. So then we went through another thing. I said, yeah, I had another loan too. And, and it, I could see her catch her breath. Like just because you're black, you got a bad law. I said, yes, yeah. Isn't it amazing we're not in the streets burning stuff down? Like, isn't it amazing that we're we're relatively well adjusted considering yeah. all of the obstacles? And I said, if I didn't have anything to compare it to, I wouldn't know that this was targeting. And if if the Wells Fargo thing and the and the housing yeah. bubble hadn't happened, we wouldn't have known that there was a willful targeting of black people. But what did that do? That impacted the wealth of black people for centuries, probably. That created a wealth gap that's going to take 200 plus years to close because people, excuse me, financial institutions willfully came after black people and gave them bad loans. I said I had a piggyback loan on a house that I didn't have, shouldn't have had a piggyback loan on. Right. And I talked to a bunch of my black friends and they all had piggybacks. They all had them, yeah. Why? I'm not sure I agree with what she's saying here. Uh, mm-hmm. saying you have a subprime loan is not a loan that is targeted towards anybody it, it, except people who are stupid and or are lying. And that's what happened. So it was predatory that people said, you can't afford this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I put a lot of that on the people taking the loan. But- I agree with you, but there, I'm gonna... two things. One. She was talking about stop and frisk. This is from the same clip at the stop and frisk Mm -hmm, section. 
And she does this weird pivot. I don't know if it's a case of the truth wanting to come out, but she starts talking about subprime loans. And yeah. I'm like, what? Where, where, how did her brain make that connection to go from stopping frisk to um to subprime loans? I'm not sure. I do agree with uh, we're gonna find out in a ah. minute. Oh uh, <laughs> well. But it's amazing that I agree with you. Well, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Let me back up for a second. She starts to clip off by saying, I was had a meeting with a white person. Right. Uh, which immediately was like, okay, so I, you're setting some kind of boundary. I'm not quite sure, but I mm-hmm. guess it was a financial person. And right. the way going over numbers, the way she twisted this is that the white people took advantage of the black people by screwing up the economy with loans they never should have given to anybody. And there's a lot of white people who got those loans, probably more than black people. But somehow that to me was a very racially charged uh, thing she was saying, and I I I can't agree with her premise. And the problem is she's conflating two things. Yes. One, one, a lot of people, smart people, because she's smart. She took a bad loan out herself. Yeah. And a lot of her smart friends did. Yeah. They took out loans they couldn't afford. But there is systematic um, discrimination in the banking process. And I'm going to prove that later, but oh, I'm sure. the fact that I'm she sure. conflates these two things and properly and, and properly conflates them uh, makes her v- argument invalid. It certainly weakens it. That's yeah, the, that's the problem. It makes it. It makes it. You know, if you want to talk about, but I'm going to explain to you why I think her brain did that weird pivot with Bloomberg blames minorities for the 2008 market crash. <laughs> Of all the things you could be wrong about, being wrong about the Iraq war is probably the most important, but I think maybe a second is being fundamentally wrong about how we ended up in the worst economic collapse of our lifetimes. And Mike Bloomberg, he's wrong. Watch. Some reference to the elements that led to where we are today. Could, Could you go a little bit deeper and tell us from your perspective, how did we get here? What are the root causes of the crisis? You can go back. I I would say it probably all started back uh, when there was a lot of pressure on banks to make loans to everyone. Um, redlining, if you remember, was the term where banks took whole neighborhoods and said, uh, people in these neighborhoods are poor, they're not going to be able to pay off their mortgages, tell them well, your salesmen don't go into those areas. And then Congress got involved as local elected officials as well and said, oh, that's not fair. These people should be able to get credit. And once you started pushing in that direction, banks started making more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as you would like. Now, it's not so bad when the market for houses keeps going up because the nice thing about making a mortgage loan is it's very secure. After all, if the if the borrower defaults, you simply sell the house and you have something that's worth more than the value of the mortgage. And that assumes that real estate prices never go down, and we just discovered that they could. Uh, he has some very <clears throat> interesting logic here. Uh, redlining, which is, of course is a, a talking point, uh, is generally seen to be as very, very bad and racist. In this case, the redlining, in fact, was protecting these uh, these neighborhoods from uh, predatory bank lending. But as Bloomberg himself said, 
But then the local officials, I would presume that's his administration, got in mm-hmm. and said, no, 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 no. You got to, hey, you can't, it's racist to just screw whitey. <laughs> Let's get everybody. And that's the thing. They only open it up when they have something toxic to sell to uh, the red line community. Hmm. But red line, and we're going to get to the history of red because it is. It's a, it goes deep. Yeah, a lot of people don't really the, know what the, the hell they're talking about with redlining. But the fact that he takes this and throws the term around as, you know, it, like you said, it was keeping, it was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I said her brain made that weird jump. You're talking about Bloomberg, stop Frisk, and then you do this weird pivot into hmm. predatory lending. So I believe she knew about this. I'm just speculating. This is 100% speculation. But just... How did your brain make that weird? I was having a conversation with somebody about money when we were right. talking about stopping frisk. Well, you're in the milieu. There you go. You're in the milieu of yeah. uh, of white rich people, I guess. So, so that's well, we know who blew, uh, if if it's the same uh, milieu. Uh, we know who Charlemagne the guy runs with. Yeah, with the uh, with the white Bank hedge capital. fund guys. <laughs> Bank Exa- ca- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this, this, I'm just saying, uh, maybe uh, he, you know they run the same circles. Uh, but let's listen to uh, Market Crash too. So, wow, there was like systemic racism in how loans were given out, who was given loans, who had access to areas to buy houses, interest rates, all that. And uh, there was an effort to to try to solve that just a little bit. And look at what you get when you solve that. You crash the economy, you dummies. That was what he offered up. It wasn't like they gave that as a theory and he talked about it for a bit. That was his core response on why did the economy fall apart? He just did a pro redlining talk there. That's unbelievable. In 2008. Yeah, that wasn't like 1978 and Corn Pop had come <laughs> into the pool. That's 2008. Redlining is specifically on, it is a racist policy. That's like saying, well, I mean, there's a value in that's like literally defending segregation, literally, <laughs> and and saying, oh, we're going to deny people loans in certain areas because they're black. And he's saying, well, that was the good old days. And when we stopped systematically uh, discriminating against blacks and Latinos, it was those blacks and Latinos being irresponsible that caused the collapse. Wow. Okay, look, other than being deeply, deeply immoral, it's also deeply, deeply wrong. So, and, and there's a good reason why Bloomberg is wrong on purpose. Oh, 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 on purpose. Okay. Yes, we're going to find out why he's wrong on purpose, but let's, uh, let's unpack some of the things that he said. Um, at, this is 2008 when Bloomberg is talking. Mm-hmm. You're that unaware that redlining is seen? To be as a bad thing, this goes. You know, this goes back to the '60s, man. This is uh, the guy is not on this earth, right? I think you go back even back to the '40s, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, the new, the uh, New Deal. Oh, this with was, this was yeah. birthed out of the New Deal. You're right. You're right. And that's why you had to have the equal was it equal housing lenders mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Uh, that that was a correction. Of the redlining. And these are real historical facts. And for him to say, oh, yeah, it was a good thing. The other thing, this go to show, we get blamed for everything. 
with thirteen percent of the population, probably damn you, point, point, damn point you, I say, percent of the of you ruined point, everything. Point, point, point of the GDP, <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, when we start giving black people loans, that, that took the whole market down. We get black. You can't make this stuff up. That is one of the most. I mean, that's that's pretty egregious. <laughs> what he was saying there. That's that man. Okay. We didn't design anything. We didn't pass any bills. We didn't loosen any regulations. Huh. And the re- and I know people out there saying, well, why would you take a loan you knew you couldn't pay for? Well, if the game is, you know, if we get in on this low interest rate and the house goes up and by, by the it. time the interest rate goes up, yep, yeah, flip. it's flipping. Yep. I mean, they have TV shows about this show and white people do it all the time. Yeah. I don't understand, but when, <laughs> when a, a suppressed group of people are given opportunity and I say that we were allowed because due to how red line work I'm I'm a, I'm a pause right there let's just get into crash 3 why cuz they had removed um, protections on leverage so the banks could make wild bets sometimes put a dollar down but make a hundred dollar bet so when you lose the dollar all of a sudden you're not losing a dollar you're losing a hundred dollars which you don't have in the bank and you did that by betting on these collateralized debt obligations and uh, and the and the derivative packages etc so I tell you all of that because there is a real answer as to why we had the collapse and and the bankers first pumped all that out into the market. Why? Because they were making money off of it. They're like, oh, go buy. Oh, we got great mortgages for you. And they were uh, handing them out like candy, right? Oh, they would say oftentimes, oh, you don't even have to worry about filling it out. Mm. But it was irresponsible blacks and Latinos who are at fault. No, the bankers told them, I don't care if you have a job. I don't care if you fill out the information all the time because we're not like the money we make on this mortgage. It's good and fine, but we're making the real money on the derivative bet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just go, 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 and they're handing them out, handing them out. Meanwhile, the entire time they're making commission and they're collecting all of that, and they took it home in bonuses and giant, giant bonuses on those giant, giant bets. Yeah. Is that uh, uh, Chunk? Chunk from uh, Young Turks? Yes. Yeah, this is Young Turks. It's a good explanation. I think he did that well. So now we understand why or how the loans were made and who was making the loans and how they benefit, why the banks push giving loans to people that they know. Because you got to look at it from both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. One, I'm a person. If a person comes to me and they have bad credit, uh, wants to borrow $100, I'm going to say, nah. Uh, I'm not going to give you that hundred dollars because it's not likelihood to get it back. So it, it, you not only can put it on the borrow, but also the lender because you have to protect your investment. But if you're making short term gains off of just l- the action of loaning the money, that's self serving. Of course. So I just want to point that out. So now, to be fair, to be unbiased as we are here on this uh, podcast, Trump had his own issues with housing discrimination. 14,000 apartments in 39 different buildings, all mostly white tenants. That is until the Department of Justice took notice in 1973 and slammed Donald Trump and his father, Fred Trump, with a lawsuit. Trump management was charged with discriminating against African-Americans and breaking federal law. 
Donald Trump, then just 27, was president of the company. The Department of Justice accused the Trumps of violating the Fair Housing Act, arguing they were turning away renters based on race and color. Who tipped them off? Local activists, so-called testers, posing as potential renters at Trump's buildings, mainly in Brooklyn and Queens. Elise Goldweber was a lawyer for the DOJ's fair housing section at the time and was called on to handle the Trump case. When the black testers came, they were shown, they, they may have been shown apartments, but were told nothing was available. Whereas when the white testers came, yes, there were, were things that were available. That would be the norm. And if the Trumps did rent to a black person, Goldweber recalls, they would do so only at one building in Brooklyn, reserving the other buildings for white tenants. That the white people would live in Trump Village and the uh, people of color would um, live in Flatbush. And according to the Justice Department, they even had a secret coding system to do it, a racial code. Here's how. Sounds pretty racist to me. So, and... This was brought up all throughout 2015, 2016. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fred Trump. Uh, I, I even had a clip, and it was unclippable, but Rachel Maddow, she was chasing down this dude that used to work for Fred Trump, and she was like, uh, Fred Trump used the N-word when talking about renting to black people, and Donald Trump was in the room. So, I mean, they, they went, they you know what's, no stone you, you know unturned. What's, you know what's interesting is, of course, um, you know, doing what I do, I, of course, I, I know of this issue. We've discussed it on No Agenda. I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever heard that detail about the the testers. I think that's the first I've yeah. heard of it. They had testers, and then they had this super sophisticated way of uh, uh, identifying black renters. Here's how. Some of the applications were marked with a C, which we learned that it meant colored. So that <laughs> wow. the, the prospective tenants who had come in um, were noted to be colored. Yes, you heard her right. The Department of Justice alleged applications submitted by prospective African-American renters were designated with a secret code, such as C for colored, to indicate a black person was looking to rent. In true Trump fashion, Donald Trump hit back, calling the government's accusations absolutely ridiculous and telling the court, I have never, nor has anyone in my organization ever, to the best of my knowledge, discriminated or shown bias in the renting of our apartments. Trump's lawyers said the government's suit failed to give names, addresses, or specific incidences of discrimination. Claiming the lawsuit caused substantial damage to their business and reputation, Trump took the most unusual step of suing the Justice Department for defamation, seeking $100 million in damages. But that countersuit was tossed out by the judge. Even so, the Trump family maintained they never discriminated based on color, but were instead trying to avoid renting to people on welfare. Two years later, in 1975, Trump and his father settled the case, agreeing not to discriminate against anyone. They also promised to advertise in publications aimed at minorities, familiarize themselves with the details of the Fair Housing Act, and notify civil rights groups of apartment vacancies. The Department of Justice claimed victory, but the Trumps never admitted any wrongdoing, reportedly noting the settlement was in no way an admission of a violation. Hmm. So, this is where I'm at. I don't agree with discrimination, but at least I know what I'm dealing with. This, 
here's my problem. People want to deal with people that's going to lie to them. If I know where you stand, then I know how to deal with you. And that's why I said, for my group of people, we need to stand back and see who has something tangible for us because they're equal on, you said, on both sides. And whoever has the most to provide, of, as far as tangible, uh, tangible standpoint, then we, um, we support them when I vote. And if nothing comes, then we don't vote. Because it, to, me, to me, it's two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. But the people that are supposed to be our leaders will put on this uh, show, dog and pony show to make it seem like there's a difference. And they're really not. Right, so, right. Uh, okay. When you say, when you say so, leaders, that, that goes down the line. I mean, it's not just the president, but that's local. Clearly, it's local, quote unquote, officials and, and uh, Al Sharpton's too. Yeah, all of, I mean, when I say leaders, I'm talking about the, uh, the clergy, the media, the politicians, all of them. The, even, not, I'm not only talking about black here either. So we have Karen Hunter, we have Bloomberg, I mean, not Bloomberg, excuse me, uh, Young Turks. If Bloomberg happens to be the candidate for Democrats, mm-hmm. they're still going to carry the water. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you, this is the <laughs> you're you're looking at the uh, at the differences here between how how each racial uh, episode for each of uh, the candidates is handled by the media, right? So you're not. It's not a. This is a litmus test, and they're not. The, the standard is not the same, right? If the standard is a guy support stop and frisk, he's a no. He's a hard no. Then both of them had to be a hard no, right? If it's you know unfair housing practices, supporting a redlining or housing discrimination, if that's a uh, if they participate in that, it's a hard no. It needs to be a hard no for both. But what I'm doing is going to show you how when you juxtapose these two people uh, against each other, uh, you see the hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. I'm here to point out the hypocrisy. And also validate the claims of redlining and stop and frisk because they're they're real. Yeah. But people, you say, oh, they, you know, some people say, oh no, it's a figure of imagination, or that was long in the past. But I would like to take a short pause here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lost one of our uh, uh, historical celebrities, Miss J- uh, Jean- Jean- Jeanette Du Bois. And she played Valona on uh, Good Times. I know people are saying, "How? What's the connection with that?" I mean, that's kind of hard, right? Mm-hmm. Well, she wrote uh, a popular song for one of uh, a popular show, The Jeffersons. I talked to my mom in New York, and I was telling her, "I said, you know, I think I blew it. I think I just, uh, I don't know if I can do what I told Norman I could do." And she said always has said this to me you can do it and I said but I don't know what to write about she said what is your what was your dream all your life my dream was to get my mother from working to put it retire her buy a car fur coats move her away from Brooklyn ghetto Ferris Street Williamsburg where I lived that was a dream 
See, living in Brooklyn, you have the east side and the west side. I want to do it to the east side. Got the, got the idea? I want to move to the east side. And I used to always tell her, one of these days, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. This was the opportunity. She says, what have you been always saying to me since you were a little girl? Even when you stuttered, you said it to me. I said, I was going to make a difference. I was going to change your life. I was going to move you out of here. I was gonna, she said, write that. And I wrote that and brought it in. And I think Norma looked at it, and he said, uh, told you about the story and I said no one told me about what story he said how do, how do you know these things that you're moving to the east side and, and all this stuff and our penthouse and blah 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 and I said well that's personal I said but that's the song that's the promise I kept saying it's the promise wait a minute <clears throat> she wrote the song yeah good yeah Jefferson's moving on up I yes. didn't know I didn't know she wrote that and I, I didn't. That's why I brought to the show one to show her her respect and rest in peace. Uh, but two, she didn't even know what the show was going to be about. And now, the reason why I brought this up and I find it interesting is she didn't know what the show was going to be about. But it's so common shared, moving out of this oppressed area to something better. This is a shared notion, especially ownership. And then now when you ask, why would people take a subprime loan? Why would people take a, you know, something that they don't even understand? Because it's it's one of few, inside baseball time, it's one of few things that you can do as a black person to feel like you really made it. One, graduate high school. Two, graduate college or any um, higher higher learning. Three, own your own business. And four is... Buying a home. That's when you really feel the American dream. Interesting that owning your own, <clears throat> owning your own business is in that list. I'm not sure that uh, owning your own business is a white thing in America as on the in the top four. Because it's independent, you feel like oh, I, I'm independent, and the same thing with home ownership. Right. I own it. It's mine. You know, this is my. You know, it goes back really psychologically, I think, back to, Way back. you know, the founding fathers and where you couldn't even vote unless you were a landowner. Right. Uh, subconsciously, it's, you know, so I wanted to share her story because she wrote the song from a place of, I'm going, Mama, I'm going to take you out of this, oh, uh, these red zones. Yeah. I'm going to take you out of these red zones. I'm going to move, you know, move you on up. And I would just like to share for her and her life. Her song one more time. Well, we're moving on. Get 
special tribute here on Mo Facts with Adam Curry for Black History Month bonus day. Janet Dubois and moving on up. And I'm glad you did that, Mo. And I'm, I'm glad you told. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know this. I didn't. I didn't know that she wrote the song. <laughs> I didn't know that she passed away February 17th. Yep. Should be should be celebrated, and I think that's an appropriate celebration of her. Um, we're going to take a quick little break here. As uh, you know, we consider everybody who participates in this conversation, and you do participate, and you're going to see it in a minute with people sending in notes. Your producers, mm-hmm. uh, producers are, are what is needed for any good production. Uh, this is not in a vacuum. Also, there's real work that goes into this, as is as, as obvious. The question is, do you learn something from it? Does it have value to you? And all we're asking for and remember, the reason why you're hearing this open dialogue is because there are no advertisers to satisfy who don't want controversy. There's no uh, no way for us to be uh, canceled because there's nothing to cancel unless the producers want to cancel us. And uh, mm-hmm. that's why we ask you to return some of the value that you received in return. We love it when you put it into a monetary format that makes it real easy to count and makes it easy to uh, keep the show going and want to thank uh, I think we can do the whole list today. We don't have uh, a huge list. They don't have a cutoff amount, but we'll just go down and uh, we will make uh, the top supporter who didn't hit the uh, $200 threshold, which is a mm-hmm. standard in the podcast industry for associate executive producer. Uh, but we want to thank Vincent Breckley for $100. And he is uh, now, do I read this? Is this a private little note we got here? Uh, no, 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 you can read it. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, Vinny says he's uh, Mo's lunch table buddy. What's the story yeah, so behind one, that? That's one of the guys that, you know, I used to podcast too before I had a podcast. I would uh, oh, wait, share these you, clips you, with him at the lunch table. You would, you would be laying down some Mo Facts during lunch? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right. So now now do you still have lunch with Vinny or is that is that over now? Oh, Just oh, listen to the podcast. Oh, no. It's, uh, it's both, but... Uh, he has to hear it last now. He can just listen to the show. Well, uh, thank you very much, Vinny. And you will be our uh, our associate executive producer for today's uh, episode. Benjamin Herbstrite, um, $55.10. We know that as double nickels on the dime. Some valuable for invaluable content. Thank you. Storm Williams says, great show. Eat bugs. Listen to Mo and Curry and donate. $50. Uh, James Lawler. Uh, let's see. James came in with forty nine ninety nine. Says Mo, I finally listened to episode twenty one, where you essentially thanked me for my special donation. I have felt a kinship f- uh, with you from episode one, and am truly honored that you and Adam consider me the same and welcome me in his family. That meant so much to me. I'm not a rich man, at least not in money, and wish this Oki could give you more because the value you've given me is priceless. Can't thank you enough for having this conversation, opening my eyes to a whole new perspective. I truly believe that united we are unstoppable. Thank you again for your courage and know that you and Adam have family in OKC and that we will welcome you in anytime and even entice you with our rabbit meat and goat milk or whatever. Oh, man, he was doing good up until that. Uh, very nice. Uh, uh, thank you very and much. And I believe James. he's our top donator so far across the history of the show. Just to- oh, okay, good. I'm glad you're keeping tabs on that. He is definitely, okay. definitely up there. Forty-eight dollars from mm-hmm. Patrick uh, Stasiak. Stasiak. Keep the show going. It's important, he says, dropping the T like a good millennial. Brad R. Mm-hmm. King, thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents, a favorite number. 
The MLK show, holy crap, Mo, blowing my mind, but I believe it. Value for value, donating is love. Yeah, I've, I I love the uh, the phrase that you that you taught me. It's like MLK was the Greta of his time. That really that stops people <laughs> in their tracks. They're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, William Cameron, $33.33. Jennifer Buchanan, who is the, uh, she's the art director of No Agenda Animated Studios, Mm $33.33. Outstanding product, she says. Thank you for your courage. Patrick Childers comes in from, or Childers comes in from the UK with 20 pounds. Thank you. Uh, Michael Olson, $25. Thanks, Mo and Adam. Brilliant stuff. Brian Kaufman, 20. Thank you, Brian. Julian Roberts, Robbins. $20. Just wanted to say the value I received from the show is worth much more than what I could currently donate monthly. I've learned so much from this show. Uh, Let me see if I can just expand this. Uh, So much from the show that I would have never heard anywhere else. Keep up the great work, guys. Julian Robbins, uh, Aptos, California. Matthew K, $20. Uh, Matthew K also comes in with 10 British pounds. So we Mm -hmm. probably... Combine those. Your show was outstanding. It, I cannot see it go unrewarded. All we want is value for value, man. Thank you. Episode 19, Block the Vote, was incredibly illuminating. Yes, these are evergreen shows. They will be good in 20 years from now. So save them. Uh, you know, publish them. Uh, put, them on, put them on uh, CDs. Put them on thumb drives. Keep copies. Kevin Roa, $10, value for value, he says, thank you. John Taylor, $10, Trimble Design and Development, uh, $10, keep up the great work. Lawrence Morse, $10 from Lawrence, a great podcast deserving of financial support. Please let the producers know if there's a way to set up recurring subscription payments. I think when you donate through PayPal, I'm not sure about the Cash App, but through PayPal, I think it even says you can make this uh a monthly donation or a, a recurring donation, I think, or a recurring payment mm-hmm. is probably what they say. Um, but we uh, will investigate and maybe set up some links uh, as we grow in uh, as we as we grow. Um, Clinton nine dollars facts. Michael Kilgus, great Mo Facts with Adam Curry show. Elvis Rosenberg, $10 uh, combined from another episode in the books. Respect, halfway through the show. Keep up the good work. So I guess he's doing it per episode. Thank you. It's a great way to look at it. Uh, James mm-hmm. Chapko, $5. And rounding on our list is Terry Keller with $4. Uh, all of you, thank you very much for uh, supporting uh, Mo Facts with Adam Curry. Uh, it means a lot to us. Uh, and I certainly, I think, Mo, you know, you've... Uh, this is a lot of the credit goes to you and you just personally from a podcast to a podcast perspective, you uh-huh. you really, you're kicking ass and you really, uh, <laughs> now you've uh, compare what you're doing here to, um, you know, some of your earlier work. I mean, this is, it's tight, it's concise, it's well thought out and, and it's honest and it's really, really good. So yeah, I, I, too, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I get my value just from sitting here with you, my friend. <laughs> Uh, and uh, everybody who would like to uh, support this show, this episode, the ones coming up, uh, please go to mofax.com. You can go directly to our um, donation page, mofundme.com, moefundme.com, and uh, we will be uh, thanking people on the next episode. And now, back to our Black History Month uh, bonus day episode. 
so where we left off at was uh, redlining. Yep. So I'm going to do a little history lesson on redlining. We you know we always have to go back to understand you know, the past and how it impacts the future. But first, I found this little funny bit by The Root on redlining. Are you looking for a new neighborhood to live in? Then come on down to Redlining Realty, sanctioned <laughs> by the U.S. government. <laughs> There's depressed infrastructure, underfunded schools, no white people. They're all in the suburbs. Heck, we'll even throw in free shoes. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Call Redlining Realty today, and we'll get you a house built on the most American foundation of all, racism. <laughs> Thanks, Root. <laughs> yeah, so you know the Root, they always, but oh, yeah. I found this show called Adam Adam Ruins Everything oh, on yeah. True TV. Yes, I, I not, not you, Adam, but no, the I, other Adam. The other Adam, yes. <laughs> so, uh, and he lays out the disturbing history of the suburbs. It's not so white here. Look. Bad example. Ignore sweater dog people. A tote bag full of kale. You're killing me, lady. Okay, maybe this neighborhood is mostly too, completely too insufferably white. But that's just the way things are here. It doesn't mean we're racist. I'm sure you're not, Ron. But the fact that so many suburbs are mostly white is no accident. It's the result of decades of racist federal policy that affect us to this day. Look. What the heck kind of game is this? It's Settlers of the Suburbs, Redlining Edition. Cool. Little Donovan, you be green. Ron, you're red. All right, red, just like the name. Looks like I've got the advantage. No, you don't. See, in the 1930s, as part of the New Deal, FDR created loan programs to help Americans finance their homes. But to decide who got those loans, the government created color-coded maps in which green neighborhoods were good and red neighborhoods were bad. This practice became known as redlining. Was this the creation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as well? Uh, I'm not sure. All right, I'll, I'll, I think that I'll may be. A, I'm thinking. I think it may have, may have been a little later. With uh, I want to say uh, LBJ. I want to oh, say. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll look it up. Mistaken. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. But as you heard, this these were government uh, practices. Yes. And, and as you heard. People say, uh, Democrats say, FDR was one of our greatest presidents. Uh, how? You gave us what we found out to be uh, public housing, which pushed, in previous show, we talked about the no man in the house rule. Right. Uh, and uh, public housing projects. And this is the other thing that we got out of the New Deal. Uh, redlining. So I'm not quite sure how that helped. Uh, <laughs> well, it helped the white people. As we're going to hear in suburbs, too. Because of these policies, if you lived in the green neighborhoods, it was super easy to get a home loan. All right, I can buy property. But for folks in the red areas, no loans were available. I can barely afford rent with this. There's no fair. The red areas are screwed. Yeah, they were. And do you know why some areas were designated as red? No, but I can guess. Those were the neighborhoods where African Americans and other minorities lived. And redlining systematically prevented them from getting home loans. 
Well, I know what I'll do. Just take my little guy and put him in the green neighborhood. Sorry, that's against the rules. Early suburb developers like William Levitt instituted explicitly racist policies. Levittown homes must not be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race. And the federal government itself encouraged developers to discriminate. Developers, I want you to exclude non-whites. The result of these policies is that from 1934 through 1968, a whopping 98% of home loans were given to white families. Okay, this, this is not fair. I did not get to pick what color I was when I started. Yeah, no one does. <laughs> yeah, so, so the, what, the, the justification, the way I understand it, and that was the, um, what is now, uh, what is it? What, what uh, Ben Carson, HUD, I guess, Housing Urban Development, yes, HUD, made, yes. uh, mm-hmm. Federal Housing Administration. Uh, they, the redlining was justified because if uh, black people moved into the white people neighborhoods, it would uh, decrease the value of their homes. That's not racist True. at all. <laughs> True. True. And so we're going to, it was a couple things starting to tie in to this episode. White flight, as we talked yes. about on the previous episode. Yep, yep. White flight was driven out of, if you move into my neighborhood, you make the property value go down. Yep. So that's why they moved before they got stuck with the de- depreciating uh, asset. Yeah. Which would have put them basically what happened in the subprime lending scandal. You, you bought a house for more than it was worth after the, after the fact. Yep. So we have, uh, we have white flight. And then we have another thing. Um, the, the integration that we talked about with uh, the color purple, not color purple, excuse me, raising in the sun. Mm-hmm. Remember, that was the whole premise behind that, uh, the family moving into the white neighborhood. Now, I've always been against uh, forced integration. So I'm all for separate but equal. Uh, why couldn't we just allow the funds to flow into the quote unquote red areas? That way you could upgrade your property uh, bring value, and then it, it was you could create your own communities. So right. you can see how this 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 kind of was the justification for people wanting to move move into white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But it was all fi- it was all forced by uh, federal law. Yes. So uh, I think we left off at two. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, suburbs three. And this advantage compounded over time. The families in the green or white neighborhoods were able to purchase homes and accrue wealth. The market went up. I can sell my house and buy a bigger one. Whereas the people in the red neighborhoods got none of those opportunities. I can't afford property. I'm behind on my electric bill. In the green neighborhoods, the influx of new wealth attracted new businesses. Whoa, we got an organic grocery. Which caused property values to go up. Which meant white families could sell their homes and send their kids to college. They grow up so fast. Passing down their wealth and advantages to future generations. Meanwhile, the red neighborhoods had far less ability to build wealth, and many remained trapped in poverty. This game is rigged. Yeah, it was. That's why laws were eventually passed that made most of these discriminatory practices illegal. Ah, ah, 
great! Finally, I can move. I don't have enough money. Exactly. Without wealth, families in the red neighborhoods couldn't afford to move up, keeping these communities separated by race. Today, 70 years after Levittown was created, it's still less than 1% black. <laughs> I may be dead, but the effect of my racism lives on. Yeah, some, some local... Uh... And this may be, now that I think about it, this may be the same everywhere. The redlining mm-hmm. was accentuated in, in Austin. We have uh, I-35. And that was the line <laughs> right there. East side, west side. You're done. And I'm, I live on the east side. I live in the red line district. <laughs> and, but, mm-hmm. the, but then when, it, when, I, when, I move, when I'm moving on down, I'm called the gentrifier. <laughs> can't <Yeah>. win. <laughs> can't win. You can't, you can't win. No. Uh, and that was very popular for them to use interstates. As I said before, Durham Freeway ran through Hayti in go. Durham, North Carolina, that destroyed, destroyed that uh, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Levitt, I think it was Levittown. Levittown. Uh, I, I have a, I have a, a couple, a black couple that was war. The husband was a World War II vet, and I just want to give a little uh, color to this this story and uh, human touch to the story of redlining. We came to Levittown and we found the model house and we walked in and we looked around and uh, of course in the eyes of a uh, young man who was raised in the ghetto so to speak it was an interesting experience, interesting lifestyle seeing all the new modern conveniences very fascinating Eugene Burnett came home with almost a million other black GIs. They had fought for the country in segregated ranks. They returned hoping for equality and the American dream. For many, that dream was a new home for little money down and some of the easiest credit terms in history. I went up to the salesman, we're interested in your home, we're interested in buying one, and uh, what is the procedure? Is there an application to be filled out? So forth. So he looked at me, looked around, and he said to me, he says, listen, it's not me, but the owners of this development have not as yet decided to sell these homes to Negroes. It was as though it wasn't real. You can't imagine. But for someone to come out and actually tell you that they can't sell to you. You know, I I was really on an up. Man, look at this house. Can you imagine having this? And then for them to tell me because of the color of my skin, I can't be a part of it. Yeah, that this uh, this is a well-known story about Levittown. So, so th- World War II vet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Levittown was Levittown was built uh, with, uh, I, I think, probably some money as well uh, from the veteran, the VA. I mean, the whole yeah. idea of this place was for veterans to be able to come back from war, you know, get their families going, and uh, and started life as uh, as people who served the country deserve. And to uh, finally uh, have their piece of the pie. I didn't know you're such a singer, Mo. That's the point. Yeah. Every, that's all we want is our piece of the pie. Now, does some of the uh, 
problems between black and Jewish stem from this? You know, the Levitts were were Jewish. Yes. And, yeah, and well, I, and I'm wondering if this, uh, if well, it's, I'm sure it didn't help any of the uh, any of the relations between these groups. But I wonder if it's we, part of the genesis. It went it went on then, and it goes on now, even today. You've seen the stories in New Jersey. Uh, what happens is when the Great Migration. So when blacks first move north into these slums, there they were previously occupied by other ethnic groups, non-white. I mean, because that was before everybody was lumped into white. So you had these other um, usually immigrant groups that the blacks were rent from. Probably, uh, okay. who Do you remember, just out of curiosity, who, who would that be? Mm-hmm. What other immigrant, immigrant groups would that be? J- J- Jews? Mostly Jewish. Okay, got Mostly it. Jewish, especially in Detroit and places like that. Yeah. So they would, they would move up and then we would backfill their community their, that they left behind. Got it. But they would exploit, and we we talked about this on a previous show, they would exploit through the way they rent it. And even they would say, okay, if you, I'm going to sell you the house, but if you miss one payment, you lose all your equity. Right. Things of this nature. So, yes, that, that this did contribute to the uh, the tension between those two groups. Uh, so... Okay. But yeah, I mean, just so I just want to let this couple finish up with their story. The FHA underwriters warned that the presence of even one or two non-white families could undermine real estate values in the new suburbs. These government guidelines were widely adopted by private industry. Race had long played a role in local real estate practices. Starting in the 1930s, government officials institutionalized a national appraisal system where race was as much a factor in real estate assessment as the condition of the property. Using this scheme, federal investigators evaluated 239 cities across the country for financial risk. So that those communities that were all white, suburban, and far away from minority areas, uh, they received the highest rating, and that was the color green. Those communities that were all minority or in the process of changing, they got the lowest rating and the color red. They were redlined. As a consequence, most of the mortgages went to suburbanizing America, and it suburbanized it racially. So this is what this is what contributed to the racial wealth gap. No kidding. And as you, I want to point something out here. When you think about images of racist white supremacists, it's usually some country guy, poor guy in Alabama, West Virginia. You know, Mississippi. But this is the real white supremacy. When we talk about white supremacy, this is what I'm talking about. This is the FHA saying, hey, if you get two black people in your neighborhood now, your your property value is going to plummet. In fact, I'll take it one step further. Um, yes, this, this was the U.S. government. Um, 
But it really was kowtowing to Wall Street. That's really what it was about. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who do we know that works on Wall Street? Um, Maybe the... the, Oh, maybe that that Bloomberg. Hmm. Uh Uh Uh-huh. And that's why redlining... Oh, redlining, you know, would have protected us from the... uh, <laughs> the some prime uh, lending, if you know, if we, if I just had my way, but wow, wait, whoa, 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 stop, no, stop, stop, stop. So go, Bloomberg go, go is actually so racist. He's he's like nineteen forty five racist. Yes, he's institutional <laughs> racism. <laughs> he's the OG. That's good. Trump is just a wannabe <laughs> compared to this. <laughs> so just think about it. Now we're starting to see these two things and where they um, converge at. You have redlining, which keeps them inside their zones. And then you send in the stop and frisk to police them in their zones. This is all institutional, right? This is when we say institutional racism. That's, this is what this we mean. This is it. Yeah. This, completely. Completely. And it's all sanctioned by the government. <laughs> um, and it's pretty damn recent. As if it's never gone away. Well, but, some people tell you that redlining did go away, but they're still modern day redlining. It's been 10 years since the economic recession, and credit has slowly returned for most Americans. By 2016, the number of conventional mortgages had risen 95% since the housing bust. And yet, some Americans are still being left behind. The gap between white and black ownership is wider now than it was in 1960. Tonight, the first of a two-part series, results of a year-long investigation from Reveal, a program produced by the Center for Investigative Reporting, as reveals Aaron Glantz reports, black and Latino home buyers in some cities seem to have a harder time getting a home mortgage. Hey there. Hi. Brooklyn native Rochelle Farool moved to Philadelphia in 2015, hoping to buy a home here. I was like, I'm going to try this thing. You know, I've got a lot of gumption. She made a good income as a computer programmer and had enough for a down payment. Her potential lender, Philadelphia Mortgage Advisors, was encouraging at first. But the lender worried her income could be unstable since she was a contractor. So Farul suggested her mother co-sign. Because my mom is a retired school teacher. Specifically, she worked in New York City for 35 years. Her pension is great. But Farul was told that wasn't enough to offset her mother's student loan debt from a PhD. I got shot down left and right. She wanted to apply for this loan. She was a contract worker, but made very good income. But and then she had her mom co-sign for it, which had a great pension, but it still wasn't enough. Right. So it makes you wonder, is this racially motivated? Well, well, let's find out in clip two. After Rochelle Farool began to wonder if race factored in her loan denial, she decided to use a new strategy. In order to be considered a good applicant, I needed to have a white person or someone who's white adjacent vouch for me. This time, she asked her girlfriend, Hanako Franz, who is half white and half Japanese, to apply with her. Franz was working part-time at a grocery store. One of her most recent bi-weekly paychecks was $162. And at the time, your financial situation was unstable. Oh, yeah. It was terrible. Oh, my God. It was so bad. It was terrible. I was borrowing money for my sister. Rochelle paid my health insurance at one point because I didn't have enough money to pay it. But for Santander Bank, the final lender for Rule tried, none of that seemed to matter. 
Franz had a good credit score, and once she came on board, it all went smoothly, even though Franz couldn't provide proof of a stable work history. They were like, we need two years, and I was just like, I can't give that to you. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, we'll move forward. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, hold on. So does she have on record, they actually said you need to have a white person, that that was a, a written requirement? No, what she did was it was an experiment. Ah, but she said, "Let me use a white or white adjacent person." Right. Uh, which it, it looks like it's going to take to be a half, half white person. Well, there was uh, some, get you in the door. There was something else in there, and I'll just mm-hmm. uh, take that and run with it to modern day slavery, not necessarily color related. Okay. Um, she had a good credit score. This has been one of my pet peeves. Yes, and you know that uh, Credit Karma was just purchased for $7 billion. Why is it important? Because it is a slave control mechanism. It's not even the official credit score as handed out by the two official credit agencies. It's a credit score by the bank or a couple of banks. And, you know, There's some consortiums. It's kind of made up. But what they really want is they want to have access to your bank account, which you give them when you sign up for these apps. You actually mm-hmm. give them your password, your username, your login, so they can do whatever they want, see whatever you do. And then even under the guise of, we're going to help you, they control you. Okay, so, um, well, if you pay your uh, utilities bill at the first of the month, your credit score is going to go up. It is total slave control. And as a running theme on this show, they always start with us. Well, thank Hello. You. Hey, th- hey, thanks, Mo. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you know, I had to marry a white woman to get enough credit to buy a house. Damn it. It's all your fault. And it only takes half a white woman because her <laughs> girlfriend was half white and half. half. It's like, hey, all you got to do is be half. Half white. And, and, she, and, it, and it's, I want to talk about this little to- uh, this little term. White adjacent. Yes. Because that was, have you heard this term before? No, no, I don't think so. Okay. White adjacent is a person who is technically a minority, but has access to utilize and sometimes benefit from white privilege. You mean like Drake? So, or Oprah (laughs) or Gail. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a better example. I gotcha. Yes. As long as you're in the proximity, but now we see this still goes on today. I mean, it's, it hasn't stopped. No. And and it's like you said, it's all about data points. And I mean, the only data points they had back in the day was your color of your skin. Like, oh, well, they come from that red zone and they got black skin. So that's a no. That's a hard no. It's so interesting. And this is a good lesson. And it's really important. This show is so important uh, beyond the racial connotation. Because mm-hmm. th- this was when data wasn't really available. This is when all this started. The data was... You live in this area. This is the color of your skin. There wasn't much else data or much, much other, other data. Now there's all of this data. And believe me, these algos are super racist, super racist. And they're determining how much sentencing you get in the criminal justice system, uh, how much you can borrow for your house. And oftentimes, if you're appropriate for a certain job and it's baked in, it is it is systemic racism um, and I'll say racism, not white supremacy, um, mm-hmm. built into today's technology. Well, like you said, this comes from the bankers. And who are the bankers? Who are the bankers? 
Well, I, 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 I can answer that many that, ways. The Illuminati, <laughs> the white. I mean, we, we, like I said, we use this. Yes, the tr- we use the, various terms. The elite, the true white supremacy, as right. uh, as our friend would say. Uh huh. Um, so I mean, that, it comes from the top down. Yes, and that's why I said it's fascinating that we're starting to see billionaires, you know, run for president and. All this truth is starting to be unveiled. But with that said, no matter how much truth people see, it doesn't matter to them. So we're going back to the Karen Hunter show, and she had a guest on, Lori Daniel Favors. And Lori Daniel Favors is an intern for the executive director and general counsel at the law, at the Center for Law and uh, Social Justice, activist, attorney, and She's on the Karen, and she's a contributor to the Karen Hunter show. So she's going to, this is pretty almost a two minute rant, but I, I just want to let her run. I didn't want to clip it. I want to let her run because no matter how many data points these people see that these two people are like, listen to this cognitive dissonance that, that she displays. Bloomberg is responsible, not just for stop and frisk, furthering it, systematizing it, glorifying it, defending it up until last year when he decided he was going to run. But he was surrounded by intellectuals, black activists, activists of color uh, across the entire spectrum who outlined for him the problems. New York City um, uh, Lawyers Association, NYCLU, the data, the statistics. He had facts. He had information. And he was committed to a racist policy that jailed black people, arrested black people, stop and frisk black people. I had 32 students, Bushwick 32, 32 two students who were on their way to a funeral had permission from their principals had letters from their parents accosted by the cops held for 36 hours had to go to trial had to get in my husband is beat up in court by court officers at their defense trial because the way in which police and court officers were militarized against black and brown communities and you expect us to just eat that he's got money so he's going to be the best candidate gentrification Bedford Stuyvesant Crown Heights Eastern York Flatbush Harlem the Bronx, black people driven out of this city under policies that favored wealthy white people and developers. We cannot even sustain our communities right now. Education, he undermined the ability for us to have culturally competent education. You want me to say, because he can beat Trump? So Trump gonna, he's gonna do what he do. Bloomberg gonna do what he do. And yeah, he might win, but guess what? All y'all getting arrested. All y'all getting stopped in prison. He implements the same policies across the country that he furthered and supported in the state of New York. Give me a break we can do better than this and i'm sorry i got to agree with megan mccain but now i'm upset i'm sorry i didn't mean to add that was mm. if he's the nominee are you gonna vote for him i don't think he should be the nominee if he's the nominee because that's a strong possibility if he's the nominee knowing and having said everything that i just said because i'm aware about how the politics and the system in this country works yes i will have to vote for him what <laughs> what? <laughs> what after that rant there you have it. Oh my goodness! And, and, but I just want to understand the. Uh, I just want to understand the justification. Make sure I understand this. Uh, so, uh, just go back to that one question. If he's the nominee. Are you going to vote for him? I don't think he should be the nominee. If he's the nominee, because that's a strong possibility. If he's the nominee. Knowing and having said everything that I just said, because I'm aware about how the politics and the system in this country works, yes, I will have to vote for him. Wait a minute. I don't understand. She just railed about the system and the politics, and she says knowing how the system and the politics in this country work, she has to vote for him? You explain it to me, because I don't don't understand it. 
I, I, but this is this is what we get. Now does everybody see? These why these people cannot be trusted. This is the reason for value for value. Yes, this is sir. why you need to have the independent media. You wouldn't have the Bloomberg uh, tape dug up without a podcaster. You won't have this conversation we're having without podcasting in the independent media. And one of those part of that independent media is what is called the new black media because they're holding people like this the task that you get up here and give a one minute and 58 second rant of everything wrong with Michael Bloomberg and you put him against another so-called racist and you will make a choice instead of saying you know what I I abstain Uh, I I know I know you just yeah. Well, so there's a, there's a number of things. One, uh, this should this show, not just this episode, but this is a good one, uh, uh-huh. should be played in uh, schools across America. Uh, children should have to listen to this show. Uh, of course, your school won't do that. Uh, so give it to your kids. And if you're really offended by some of the naughty words we use, you can always take them out. Uh, it is especially beautiful to learn this during and of course i've learned more than most people casually dropping in on the podcast uh but during uh, black history month the bonus day no less mm-hmm. um black people of america you got some problem with the black people of america too this we got a clean house yes we have to clean we it's, we have the clean house it's a lot rampant. of these people gotta go it's rampant it's Mo. the top it's the top 10 percent and the bottom 10 percent and this is what I'm saying. The top 10%, the top 10%, they idly sit by and they only do what they're told by their pay, you know, who, who control them. Mm-hmm. We got to understand what Boule is again. That's the, that's the uh, advisors to the king. So even her, she laid out everything, but you know what? I'm still going to vote for the exact same thing I say is the problem. How does that work? That that was the and baffling it, part to me. I loved her rant. Her rant was fantastic, except for the last minute, she just blew it all up. It's like, what are you? But because Trump is going to continue that, and you're going to vote for the guy they, who actually was doing it. And these people don't bring us any solutions. They're the top ten percent. They're supposed to be the so-called leaders, and then they allow us to be terrorized by the bottom ten percent in our communities because you damned if you do, you damned if you don't. Right. It's like if I want policing in my community i can't get quality policing which that's why i think we should police ourselves i mean that's a whole nother show for another whole nother day but mo explain the the bottom 10 percent. the bottom 10 percent is the you know where the crime comes from right the people that hold you're saying i mean it's not that's the point you have a large quiet group of people in the middle that are scared to call out the top and they're scared to address the bottom Right. So they stay silent and I won't stay silent. Yes, you can do two things at once. We can call out the top while saying, tell the bottom, this is not acceptable behavior. I understand the source of it. I understand the communities were pumped full of drugs and guns and uh, you were uh, uh, suppressed and not allowed to have funding and lending and everything else that all the other Americans are privileged of. But that is no reason to terrorize your own people and your own community. No, you can do you can chew and walk gum at the same time. I mean, come, I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah. Wow. But. 
But not to end on that low note. No. You know, I always like to you know, end on a high note. Yeah. Just cause, I mean, just for the psyche. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one of the biggest scandals that were overlooked in this whole Trump and Bloomberg uh, fiasco. Smackdown. Was covered by Mr. Jackson, which is a YouTuber. He only has 200 subscribers. So that goes to show you how I dig to find these clips. Since being dubbed Mini Mike, Bloomberg has been trying to hide his height from the voters. However, thanks to video evidence, it will be impossible for Bloomberg to lay low, except on a measuring tape. Here we see Mini Mike standing on a box while giving a speech, so we know it's not beyond him to pull all sorts of tricks. Little Mike's favorite trick is to use a pair of lifts inside of his shoes, and he might have got away with it with the help of MSNBC. Here we see MSNBC put a box in front of the evidence, so we don't know what he's really wearing. Luckily, I was able to find this photo on the Internet, which clearly shows the shoes he was wearing the night of the disaster in the desert, (laughs) the Democratic debates. Notice anything funny about these shoes? I do. Look at those lifts there on the side, pressing out on the shoe. We can see he's got at least four or five inches of lift in there. (laughs) Though the cameras used tricks to hide his lifts from viewers, there was no way of escaping the fact that at some point, Bloomberg would have to walk in those shoes. (laughs) I can't believe I missed this. Well, you were kind of on top of it because you caught where... They had lowered the uh, the lecterns. Yeah, I saw that, but uh, I didn't know he had lifts in his shoes. He had a double boost. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so it's lift gate. It's, the, it's, it's everybody to- missed it. It's total lift gate. Oh man! Oh, I- I'm looking for a picture now. Now I want to see it. I will post the video of this. Yeah, Mr. Jackson's video. Yeah, Mr. Jackson's video. I definitely want to see that. Definitely. Uh, I want to put it in the show notes. That's too good, man. All right. Well, let's let Mr. Jackson finish up, man. Let's take a look at how Mayor Bloomberg walks. First, in regular time. I'll see if you can catch what's so strange about this walk. Huh. Interesting. Now, let's take a look at it in slow motion. And I want you to take a very close look at his knee. More specifically, where the knee bends. Wow. Look how long that leg is. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? Let's take a look again. Very, very big shins you have there, Mayor Mike. Perhaps Mini Mike has the world's largest shins. But more likely, he's wearing a pair of lifts. The only person I know with a set of shins that long is Dalsam. Yoga flame. Yoga fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dalsam from Street Fighter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only video game I would recognize in the entire world is <laughs> Dalsam. We love Dalsam. Oh, my. So, he's, he's basically on stilts is what we're saying here. It's not just yes. lifts. It's stilts. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's the best, Mo. Yeah, we'll we'll put Mr. Jackson's <laughs> video in the show notes. That is too funny. Well, that goes to show uh, that Trump, in, in this back-and-forth billionaire smackdown, he definitely uh, has uh, pinpointed Bloomberg's real sensitive spot. If you're going to that length, he's so frustrated over it. That's That's pretty incredible. <laughs> 
That is amazing. Oh, man. Mo, thank you. That made my day. Let's remember the show was about redlining and other <laughs> racial practices, but I love this. That was good, man. Thank you. That good laugh. Good laugh for a Saturday. Yeah, so just to take us out of here. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, they're going to look at two people that have similar views and two through two different lenses. Yes. So. Well, um, Mo, thank you very much for uh, for bringing all of this to the show once again. And uh, I will remind everybody that this work should be compensated in the value that you as an individual get out of it. So whatever that value is to you, please send that to us in a monetary form. Go to mofax.com or directly to our donation page at uh, mofundme.com, M-O-E-fundme.com. And as I always say, Pay attention to everything, and the truth will reveal itself. That is the truth, and this is the song for Mini Mike, I guess. <laughs> we'll talk to you uh, Talk to you next week, Mo. All right, talk to you later, Adam. The big stuff. Who do you think you are? It's the big stuff. You're never going to get my love. Do now. Do you think I can afford to give you my love? Oh, you yeah. think you're higher than every star above, Mr. Pinkster? Who do you think you are, Mr. Pinkster? You're never gonna get my love. Poor girls cry when they try to keep you happy. They just try to keep you satisfied. This is the best of. Tell me, tell me, who do you think you are? This You're never gonna get my love. Gonna break.